COVID-19 was a pandemic that put our public health institutions to the test. When it came to small-scale, remote indigenous groups, however, the effect of COVID was even more difficult to resolve, as resources for such vulnerable groups remain limited. This was also true for the Chimane, an indigenous group in Lolian, Bolivia. Hello, my name is Michael Gervin. I'm a professor of anthropology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I got to talk to Professor Gervin yesterday. He's been conducting fieldwork with South American indigenous populations for two decades. He's also the co-director of the Chimane Health and Life History Project, which works to better understand how aspects of environment and lifestyle affect health and lifespan in subsistence-level societies. More recently, his research group published a study with lead author Professor Tom Kraft on how to test whether voluntary collective isolation was likely to be effective at preventing the rapid spread of COVID-19 among the Chimani people with the goal of finding solutions. After running simulations, his research group found that the Chimani would likely face high risks of infection, and without severely curtailing travel, voluntary collective isolation was likely to fail. And largely we study aging, uh, what aging looks like, chronic diseases of aging, and what overall what the experience might be like, both physiologically, physically, clinically, uh, but also just your lived experience in a very different kind of environment. And so that research uh, involves kind of a roving medical team with Chimane-trained anthropologists who were visiting villages year-round and, you know, over 90 villages year-round, uh, not just the Chimani, but a related group, the most of 10, who inhabit the surrounding areas. And that's part of our kind of routine kind of work that we do. We provide primary health care at the same time that we're collecting epidemiological and other types of information. And so that's kind of the bread and butter. But, you know, pandemic started to hit, and we were faced with a situation, what should we be doing? And, you know, clearly we're going to stop operations. We weren't going to keep on sending people um, and certainly don't want to in increase any kinds of risks of disease spread. And at the time, you know, as you can imagine, there was a lot of worry about vulnerable populations living in remote areas that um, there's certainly a large... Uh, ugly history of indigenous populations um, suffering from uh, a variety of pandemics over not just our nation's history, but throughout the world. And so, yeah, we were worried, um, as you can imagine. And so, you know, our projects, because we worked so long in the area, you know, we're kind of networked in with local municipal kind of authorities and local medical um, personnel, as well as the local indigenous government. And so we kind of joined forces to, you know, what should we be doing? And at first, it was really an attempt to try to prevent COVID from spreading to that area. And we, um, there were hopes, right, that maybe it wouldn't reach that area. And so we worked, you know, we took the CDC posters and translated them into Chimani language and printed them out and brought them to a bunch of villages. We were doing a lot of kind of outreach on the radio um, about um, different strategies. We're trying to minimize risk. 
Uh, but also there was a kind of collective decision about what the Chumani were going to do sort of as a collective whole. Uh, and that was what we were calling voluntary collective isolation. So basically to shut themselves off from nearby towns and interactions with outsiders. And certainly there's a precedent for that. A lot of groups uh, have been talking about that and trying to do it. And it seemed like a good idea at the time. But as you can imagine, you know, how do you regulate, you know, 90 some different villages across rivers, across roads? Uh, there's lots of people coming and going. And so the Chimane are one group that maybe possibly could have done it because, you know, unlike a lot of indigenous groups, they're not really terribly pegged to the market economy. So the Chimane fish, they hunt, they have small gardens where they produce their own food. So they could live self-sufficiently. And so this collective isolation strategy was something that worked for a little bit, but then it didn't. And COVID did spread. And I know this is going on for a long time. <laughs> Giving the backstory here, it's it's long. Because at the time, so I had a postdoc, Tom Kraft, who can't be here, but for a good reason, because he's now a professor at University of Utah. And he had just taken a course on kind of network epidemiology. And this is, you know, using tools for, you know, monitoring how infections can spread, um, but taking into account that people's interactions are not random, right? You don't interact with everyone in Goleta or Santa Barbara on a daily basis. You have friends and close networks, uh, people you interact with. So it's a simple idea, but incorporating that information into the, the usual kind of epidemiological modeling hasn't really been done a whole lot. And so now armed with some new tools, we wanted to use, we have years of data uh, on you know from censuses to knowing how often people visit towns to how often do people interact with different people within their village uh, how often do they go and visit the village next door? So using all that information, it's like prime for trying to understand actual contact networks to then model how a disease like COVID might actually spread in the Chimani population. So at the time, the goal was, wow, we can try to use these tools uh, to help maybe well, one, to test whether or not this voluntary collective isolation is actually a good idea. Will it actually work? Uh, and how effective might it be? But then also to ask some hypothetical questions, right? Like, well, all right, maybe voluntary collective isolation might not work, but where should we focus our attention? Should it be limiting just visits to town? Should it be limiting visits between villages? What about you know, every village, there's big uh, festive collective events, right? From community meetings to parties to village anniversaries. Should those be kind of banned for a while? What about masks? And, and all these kinds of questions that we could ask. And our interest here wasn't just, I mean, certainly it was for the Chimani to see what would best work to um, help prom uh, promote the existing efforts we were doing. Uh, but also, are there some generalizable things we're observing that might help other populations in a similar uh, situation? 
Uh, so that was the goal, and that was the initial setup for kind of launching this study. But as you know, this study just came out now, so it took over three years to do the thing that we hoped could be done relatively quickly to guide our efforts. Uh, so that part didn't quite work, and but we did actually realize, even though we already understood that, that voluntary collective isolation, it didn't work, but it wasn't like, oh, because of something we did or something that could have easily been prevented. Basically, in all of our simulations, voluntary collective isolation really didn't work, uh, that COVID was going to spread, and it was going to spread like wildfire unless there was really severe restrictions on all types of travel, not just the town, but especially within villages and between villages. And so, so that was very instructive. Like, it was not very feasible given the tools and the capacities on the ground uh, and local understandings, right? Like vaccines, for example, is not something that was very popular in rural Bolivia and not something that uh, local people were kind of willing to, to try to uptake. So for more context, um, I understand that Chimani people have access to limited medical resources. Um, what exactly does their healthcare infrastructure look like? Are they largely self-sufficient? So the Chimani is a rapidly growing population. So for a long time now, we've documented that you know, the average Chimani woman, if she lives over her reproductive years, will have nine births. And... And so when you combine the fertility patterns with the mortality patterns, what you get is a growth rate of almost 4%, which basically means almost every 15 years the population size is doubling. So there's a lot of Chimane villages, and you know maybe the population growth is going to slow down uh, in the near future, but with so many people, even with some limited healthcare facilities, it's impossible to really meet the, the demand. And so there's some Chimani villages that are really poised close to town, uh, and those have greater access. They can go to the hospital, they can go to pharmacies, and their local pharmacies, you often don't need uh, prescriptions, you can just buy things. Um, and so there's a lot more access, but there's, not, there's limited resources. People don't have very much money to buy things. Uh, and so if it's not covered by local insurance schemes, then um, it's hard to to meet those needs. Uh, and then there's Chimani who just live in more remote villages. And so they're not going to make the two-day trek in order to go to a health clinic or to go to a, um, a hospital, and especially if there's other limitations. You go to a hospital, you don't speak Spanish very well. And so you can imagine easily getting lost in the medical system the, the medical facilities are, are relatively limited, better in the last decade than they ever used to be. But also, I mean, with our project there, we're actually providing a lot of the kind of health services currently, um, but trying to work with local folks in order so that, you know, we're not a permanent solution by any means, right, but to improve local services throughout the territory. Right. And you mentioned earlier that you guys were running simulations on how COVID could affect this community. Um, can you elaborate a little more on how those simulations worked? Because I know you had all this data, but mm. how did you use it? Magic. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like you don't want to look under the hood. 
Uh, and that's where you know Tom's expertise uh, came in. We actually had to use uh, a computing cluster here at UCSB and also at Max Planck Institute because there wasn't enough compute. It would have taken you know months on end uh, to run the simulations, uh, just because every individual in the network is is has a complex network. And so basically, we took all the information about kinship about who lives in each village and um, how often individuals were visiting uh, each other within a village, but also between villages and to town. So basically, from that, you can generate all these you know, contact networks. And then you kind of seed the simulation. So there has to be a patient zero, a first case. You know, and we seeded it in town. And because people are visiting towns in a simulation, someone's going to get COVID. And you know we had all the parameters about you know how long the the the, per the period between when you, the exposure and infection, and how long you're contagious. And so, and then presumably someone with COVID, right? Then they go back to their village, and because they're linked to other people through contact networks, that kind of determines the spread. And and it could spread to other villages either because those people are also visiting town or they're visiting villages where there's infections, and so basically you you kind of seed it, and you know in a run, and you can see over time how COVID's going to spread in every village, um, and so. I think we, I forget, we did something like 60 or 70 villages that we had good information on uh, to see like what might things look like. And you do that many, many times, right? Because it's simulation land, right? You can uh, do anything you want and, and you see if there's a pattern. You know, it could be that every time you see it, it's a wildly different pattern. But generally, that's not the case, that many times you see similar kind of results, and then you can summarize over many simulations. So all of that was just to say, you know, without using the terminology of these complex, you know, epidemiological models that incorporate networks, uh, is that we were able to simulate using real data on real interactions between people uh, in this kind of indigenous context where it's not just the Chimane, but people live in, you know, many, many villages, and those villages are sort of scattered throughout the Chimane territory. And so you can look at certain things, like, is it the case that villages that are right next to town, are they going to see the most COVID? What about those villages that live really far away? Maybe they'll be protected. Maybe COVID will never reach there. Uh, what about, you know, the small villages versus big villages? Uh, what about, you know, important people in the networks, like the chiefs? If the chiefs are the ones most likely to be going to town, maybe they're going to be the spreaders. Uh, but, you know, are those same chiefs the, the important people in their communities that are connected to the most amount of people? If so, then, okay, maybe that's where you're going to see the spread. So all those kinds of questions we were interested in exploring, and that's what the simulations were allowing us to do, when at the same time, on the ground, with the team, we were actually, you know, we had all the kind of COVID precautions, everyone was tested, we went through all, all of that, uh, and then we were trying to monitor the spread of COVID uh, in the communities once it did eventually hit. 
and and try to make sure, especially because so much of our work focuses on older people, uh, and given that older people were at the greatest risk, uh, at least in the U.S. and many other places, uh, we could try to kind of keep tabs and make sure that older people were um, not doing very poorly and that we could try to help intervene with local uh, medical authorities uh, if that need arised. And so, you know, towards the end of this kind of simulation exercise, um, we actually had real data on how much had COVID spread in the Chimani community and what did it actually look like. And so what we actually predicted, I think, was... I recall it was, it was very close, like 79 or 80 percent of Chimane were going to get COVID as a whole. You know, it varied a little bit between each village, um, but that's that's huge. That's at the time it was much higher than had been observed almost everywhere, where there was these kinds of epidemiological surveys based on actually testing people. Uh, and but because we did have the kits, we were testing people. Uh, to see whether they had had COVID, both kind of in the moment, but then also in the past through antibody testing. Uh, and it turns out as a whole, we found it was about 78% had had COVID. And so that was very close to what we actually predicted. Uh, so yeah, the one time where you want your model prediction not to work, <laughs> uh, you know, this wasn't, this wasn't it. But, but of course, you know, you could also you could be right for the wrong reasons. But, you know, going deeper, when we actually looked at the prevalence in different villages of of or the cumulative incidence, I should say, uh, of COVID, uh, it actually turned out that there was a, a good one to one prediction, a relationship between what we predicted, how many people would have COVID in each village and how many actually did based on our antibody testing. So it does suggest that you know this kind of model that actually takes real interactions into effect um, can go a far a long way towards actually helping understand what the spread might actually look like. Uh, and what it also told us, um, which I think I hinted at before, was almost which way you sliced it. It didn't really matter. Uh, voluntary collective isolation wasn't going to work. There were things that you could do that might slow the spread, but by but but by a few weeks. And so, in terms of like the end point of at the end of the day, how many people in the, in the Chimani community are gonna have had COVID? It didn't really change very much. Uh, we did we did find that if you could reduce the transmission rate between people, so like if you were wearing masks or if you were immunized. That could have a bigger effect. But realistically, in the cultural context, um, let alone just the epidemiological context, even if people had wanted vaccines, they weren't very easy to get. Uh, there weren't campaigns where people were kind of coming out to villages and bringing, bringing vaccines. Uh, it was, the, I think, the Russian and the Chinese vaccine that they had at the time. Uh, and there were cases, you know, some of the same kinds of rumors or worse that had been sp the misinformation spread about vaccines was spreading locally there as well. So there was a lot of mistrust. And so, yeah, uh, in terms of directing, you know, needed medical attention, it shouldn't just be thinking in town. 
right? Like don't just show up in town and then wear a mask because what we found is that most of the, con most of the infection was not obtained by Chimani visiting town in our simulations, but was actually in the villages. And so, yeah, those kinds of results, I think, were, you know, meshed with our reality of what actually happened on the ground and I think give important lessons for moving forward and thinking about how to navigate a situation like this were to occur again uh, in these kinds of uh, territories. While Professor Gervin is back in Santa Barbara, he's been communicating with his group using WhatsApp. They're back to focusing on what he calls their quote-unquote bread and butter, epidemiological surveillance. Moving forward, Professor Gervin is planning on continuing his research in Bolivia, but is now looking into cognitive aging among the Chimane. His research group published a paper finding that the Chimane have some of the lowest rates of dementia of any population. They want to learn why Chimane cognitive aging is slower, and if they find an answer, it could be used to solve the world's persistent problem of Alzheimer's. And so to get a better handle on cognitive aging, and if it really is the case that you know, dementia rates are very low and we're not seeing very much Alzheimer's, you know, that's, that's like a, you know, a huge deal, right? Because Alzheimer's is such a persistent reality right now in our world, and it's only getting worse with the aging of the global population and the fact that we haven't quite figured out what to do about it yet. So, so yeah, the hope is that, uh, that the Chimane cognitive aging will be slower and that we'll have more definitive evidence of that and we'll get a better handle on how and why and that, you know, maybe the answer doesn't require that we be hunters and gatherers, right? But that there's lessons to be learned about some of the lifestyle and some of the other exposures that maybe can be implemented in our lives to help protect against cognitive decline. With KCSB News, I'm Zoha Malik.